The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our show today is going to be about um, living with bipolar disorder and about a family's experience with a loved one who um, developed bipolar disorder in his late 20s. And our guest today is Dottie Pacheas, who has written a book called Mind on the Run, which chronicles her family's experience with um, bipolar disorder. And Dottie has written a very easy-to-read and very heartfelt um, chronicle of their family's experience. And um, I want to welcome you, Dottie, to our show, and thank you for sharing um, this information. This is a very, um, a very intimate, detailed knowledge of your family, so thank you. Mary, for the opportunity to be on your show today. What made you decide to write a book about your family's experience? Um, I felt I had a story to tell. Um, I wanted to raise awareness of mental illness, but more importantly, uh, I wanted to raise awareness of the difficulty of getting adults treated. Uh, once you turn 18, you cannot be forced to take your meds or be treated. That's right. And there's even a, a, a portion of our society that, that believes that forcing someone to take their meds is a violation of their civil rights. Um, and that I'm is correct. Yeah, and how you feel about that? Well, um a little bit of background on how we got to where we are in this country with our involuntary commitment laws. Um, there was a time uh, back in the 1940s, 1950s, when families could relatively easy commit a mentally ill relative um, to a mental institution, as they were called then, for forced treatment. And unfortunately, some of these facilities became dumping grounds not only for the mentally ill, um, but also for people with physical disabilities, elderly people whose families perhaps no longer wish to care for them. And when it became uh, public knowledge that such deplorable conditions existed, there was, of course, a public outcry to close these institutions, and uh, states began passing laws to make it illegal to force treatment or medications on adults with a mental illness. And while I very much applaud the efforts to close these state-run asylums, uh, lawmakers fail to consider people like my son uh, and others like him. If you don't understand that you're sick, how can you make rational decisions regarding your treatment? And the answer is you can't. It's the families of mentally ill people 
who are the first to recognize that their loved ones are ill, but the laws in most states literally render them helpless until the individual becomes either suicidal or homicidal. And um, when we deinstitutionalized back in the 1950s, we merely shifted these people elsewhere. Uh, in essence, now we institutionalize them in our jails and in our prisons. There are hundreds of thousands of mentally ill people incarcerated who, for the most part, are going untreated. I contend well, I- that um, there is a balance between protecting an individual's civil rights um, while at the same time getting them the much-needed treatment they require so that they're not a threat to society. I think you're absolutely right, Dottie. And I know, like in New Hampshire, for example, you know, we've shut down beds in our state hospital because of funding for staff. We have the beds, but the state doesn't have money for the staff. Yet our prison system just opened up a 40-bed inpatient unit. So as a society, we really are treating the mentally ill in the correctional setting. We're going back to the asylum, except for now it's really not an asylum. It's just prison. That's correct. Um, I think that, you know, it's hard for people to understand um, who who don't know someone that has a severe mental illness, but these are brain diseases and that it affects the part of the brain. Um, people that have schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, when they're, especially when they're very manic, the part of their brain that, that, um, that gives us the judgment and insight is the part that's the most affected. So it's, it's like saying to someone who has chest pain, you know, um, when your heart stops, then we'll give you treatment. But until you you have a cardiac arrest, you know you you can't you can't be here. And and I think that society really doesn't understand how preventable how preventable some of these um, symptoms are, and and how people and families don't have to go through the terror they go through um, to get treatment. I, I agree, Mary. Um, bipolar disorder, for those who don't know, um, is defined as a complex medical illness of the brain involving episodes of serious mania and depression. It is, unfortunately, uh, a lifelong illness with recurring episodes. Um, but I'd, I would like to emphasize that treatment works. Uh, bipolar disorder is a treatable illness. It does not have to be terminal. It's much like diabetes or hypertension or heart disease or asthma that if you treat your symptoms, you don't end up with um, having to be hospitalized. And unfortunately, people don't understand that. That is correct. Um, you know, normal life... Uh, just does not exist for a bipolar family when their loved one stops taking their meds. Um, they they always live with uh, varying degrees of apprehension, not to the point that it controls their lives, but it's just an ever-present fearful thought that rears its ugly head when the loved one has emotional setbacks. Daddy, where did you learn about bipolar illness? How did you learn about it? 
Um, I was forced to learn about it, Mary, because um, when my son first became ill um, in December of 1993, um, I had no knowledge of bipolar disorder. Um, My son was one of six kids, um, and my husband um, had died uh, the previous year after a uh, four-year illness. So uh, it was up to me and uh, Scotty's five siblings to deal with this incredible situation that we found ourselves in. So I quickly uh, did some homework. Um, My first contact was to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I wanted to learn everything I could about the illness um, and educate myself so that I knew what we were up against. In your book, um, you talk a lot about advocacy and about our system being broken. And um, some of the uh, articles that you kind of collected um, highlight the fact that um, people not having access to treatment or the non-treatment of people that have mental illness, how devastating it could be. And some of the articles that you um, cite in your book is about um, a bipolar teenager who stabbed his friend 50 times, a 76-year-old bipolar man off his medications who robbed a bank, a bipolar mother stabbed her 7-year-old daughter, um, A mentally ill mother stoned her two sons because God told her to. A depressed 22-year-old mother hung herself and her three children. A bipolar man off his meds drove his car down a Florida airport runway alongside the planes up to 130 miles per hour before crashing. And um, these are all things that could have been prevented. They are all lives that could have been saved. They, They are indeed. Mary, you can pick up the newspaper almost any day of the week, and you can read about yet another tragedy involving untreated mental illness. Um, The most recent event that comes to mind was the Seattle shooting in late May. Um, Then again, the tragic shooting in Tucson comes to mind. Um, Thirteen people were injured and six people were gunned down. One of the injured in Tucson, as we all know, was Congresswoman Gifford. And in March this year, I learned that an appeals court approved forcibly continuing to medicate the accused Tucson shooter to restore his competency to stand trial. We didn't force him to take his meds before he gunned down 19 people that day, but now we're going to force him to take his meds so he can stand trial. There's something wrong with this picture. There is indeed. Um, Bipolar disorder is a very treatable illness. Um, I don't know why my son stopped taking his meds. He just did. Um, He was severe. Um, There are many people who um, are able to maintain a somewhat normal lifestyle. They have careers. They have families. They manage their bipolar disorder. They don't allow it to manage them. And those people I have great respect for. My son was not among them. (laughs) You know, I think that it's been my experience that a lot of people, when they get better, um, 
you know, they're taking their medications, they get better, and they stop taking them because they think, oh, well, I'm fine. I don't need my medication anymore. And that could be true for anti, anti, like antibiotics. You know, a lot of people don't take the 10 days worth. They start feeling better, and after five or six days, they think, oh, well, I don't need them anymore. So I think it's common. It's a common situation that if you're a treatment provider, you realize it's a common situation and you help people prepare for that time when they feel like I'm doing really well, I don't need my meds anymore. And and I think with good treatment, that could be, um, you know, that could just become an issue of treatment and it wouldn't have to make it be a severe incident when somebody goes off their meds. And I think that, you know, in your son's experience, um, he didn't have consistent treatment like he would if he had diabetes where he was being monitored every three months or every six months. And when we come back from commercial, um, I'd like you to share with us about your son and his illness. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about um, bipolar disorder and its effect on, on families and individuals. And our guest today is Dottie Pacheas, who is um, a mom and uh, has written a very heartfelt chronicle of her family's experience with her son, who had bipolar disorder. And the name of the book is Mind on the Run, a Bipolar Chronicle. And... Um, before we went to break, Daddy, we were talking about your son, but we were also talking about NAMI and um, and how helpful that was for you in learning about bipolar disorders. Was there other parts of NAMI that were helpful too? Uh, yes. Um, 
I would recommend to any family who has a member with a mental illness, NAMI's family-to-family class. It's a 12-week program, uh, and it the audience is limited to 20 people. Um, they are all people, parents, uh, spouses, um, grandparents, dealing with mental illness in their family. The class is exceptional, um, and you learn that other people uh, are dealing with the same thing that you're dealing with uh, and, and how to handle it. Um, it is just an incredible support group. I think that that's a, a vital um, information for people, and NAMI has chapters in every state and almost in every big city. That's correct. I believe the website is nami.org. That's correct. And uh, when you log on to that website, you have an opportunity to find the closest chapter to your city and state. Um, You know, you were talking about um, people's rights for treatment, and I know that through the research that has been done, it at Dartmouth and other places, when the family is involved in someone's treatment, the outcome is so much better. But often the laws inhibit the family from being involved, either through confidentiality or because the person isn't a threat to themselves or others. And there are organizations out there that are trying to, um, I guess, make the law more family-friendly, and I believe you've been um, involved with one of those organizations as well, the Treatment Advocacy Center? That's correct. I'm very uh, active in that organization, also um, uh, an incredible organization that doesn't work with families so much. Um, Their focus is um, working at the local um, state level to get the laws changed so that people do not um, have to go for unlimited periods of time uh, without the treatment that they so desperately need. Uh, The the Treatment Advocacy Center's focus is on getting the laws changed. Uh, NAMI's focus is um, support groups, not only for families, but they have a wonderful peer-to-peer support group wherein... Um, people with a mental illness can meet. You're surrounded by people dealing with the same thing that you're dealing with. Um, you, you get support from this group. Unfortunately, I could never convince Scotty uh, to attend any of these support groups. Can you tell us um, about Scotty? Um, what was he like before he got ill, and how old was he when he became ill? Well, um, Scotty was 27 um, when he became ill, um, and that was, um, he, we first noticed signs of it in December of 1993, and by ill, Mary, I mean his behavior became just absolutely weird, no other way to describe it. Um, very psychotic, out of control, um, he drove his car like a maniac at high rates of speed with with absolutely no regard for other drivers who might get in his way. He was wired, high-strung, almost obnoxious to be around, and his sleep pattern changed. Um, 
He required little to no sleep, yet he never showed any signs of fatigue. He talked nonstop. He just would not sit still. Uh, he told us he was investing a million dollars, which he didn't have, um, in a company that he was going to form called Save the Animals. Um, he was also running top-secret political campaigns for both Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, who he claimed he knew personally. Uh, he became extremely religious, and, and I do mean extremely religious. He carried his Bible everywhere. Uh, several weeks um, after his behavior changed, in mid-January of 1994, he was hospitalized. Um, it was very clear to all of us that something was really wrong with him, um, but we had never witnessed such psychotic behavior. Um, and to make matters worse, my family possessed a very limited knowledge of mental illness. Um, he spent, actually, his 27th birthday in a padded cell in a psychiatric ward at a Northern Virginia hospital. His family could view him on camera only because he was considered dangerous by the hospital staff. Um, and, and in the way of a little bit of background, Scotty's biological mother suffered from alcoholism and severe depression. And she took her life in her mid-40s when Scotty was eight years old. Um, Scotty's biological father, my husband, um, and, and I were subsequently married after the death of his wife. Um, the doctors diagnosed Scotty as having bipolar disorder. They transferred to him, him to a mental hospital, and he was involuntarily committed. Um, and he thought the hospital was a training ground for the CIA. Um, he thought all his conversations were monitored. Um, he thought he was in the witness protection program. Uh, some days he thought he was a prophet of God. And some days he actually believed he was God. Other days he was the President of the United States living in the White House. Um, you know, when I would go and visit him, I... There were times I just wanted to grab him by the shoulders and shake him and ask him, why are you behaving like this? But he sincerely believed everything he was telling us. He was in complete denial that anything was wrong with him. Um, but after a full month of treatment, Scotty recovered and was able to rejoin society. Um, the initial progress was slow, but... After um, about the first 10 days of treatment with fourth medications, we began to see encouraging signs that the real Scotty was returning. And before he was discharged from the hospital, he received extensive counseling on how to cope with and manage his bipolar disorder. And very importantly, he received um, instructions on how to recognize signs of recurrence. Um, you know, uh, treatment worked for him after a month of forced meds. Um, at the time, none of us really understood the magnitude of bipolar disorder. Um, the doctors just told us after that first frightening um, episode that Scotty would be okay as long as he took his meds, and that's what we wanted to believe. Um, 
none of us foresaw the nightmare that lay ahead of us. When Scotty was really young, he was quite the entrepreneur, too, wasn't he? I he mean, was. He was indeed, really yes. bright and... Very, very bright. Um, he, um, he, he always figured out a way to earn money, whether it was selling donuts, um, having a paper route. Um, he um, got a, a job at a fast food restaurant um, at age 13, obviously lying about his age to get the job. Um, and then he developed an interest in bicycles and um, uh, landed a job uh, at the local shopping mall um, at a bike shop. Um, he he always had money, um, and he figured out a way to earn it. Um, and he went, I mean, he was very successful when he got ill at 27. He was I mean, very wife, successful. Yeah. Uh, he owned no one saw a company it at... In his mid thirties. Yeah. Um, what was his experience with alcohol and other drugs? Um, he he did have some drug usage uh, in high school, um, and um, when his father and I found out about it, um, we um, we put a stop to it. But um, he used more drugs than either of the other two sons in high school. And he continued the usage in college as well. Um, he, he also drank more than I thought he should have. Um, but then I kind of made allowances for him. Um, you know, college, um, college students drink a lot of beer. Um, I, I, I made a lot of allowances for him. Um, I, I, it never occurred to either me or his father um, that there may be something more to this um, until we saw his really um, very strange behavior uh, in 1993. Um, but with hindsight, throughout his teenage years, there, there were some things that perhaps um, I should have been more concerned about but his father and I just made allowances for his very outgoing behavior. Well, he, on one hand, he was so successful. I mean, he was a self-starter, and he had good grades. And He was. He was the smartest of all six of our kids. And um, throughout um, grammar school, high school, college, we never saw him study. Um, it, it just came very easy for him. Straight A's throughout um, high school and college. Um, he was voted most likely to succeed by his high school senior class. He received early acceptance uh, at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Just uh, an outstanding student. Very, very bright. So it must have been very devastating for him to 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 get this illness. Oh, it was. Um, uh, for Scotty, um, the word embarrassment uh, took on a whole new meaning because he had five major prolonged manic episodes, and he could remember every detail of everything that he did, uh, and his behavior. Oh. 
was very, very manic and dangerous. And um, we'll be right back to talk with Dottie more about Scotty and his uh, treatment um, for his bipolar disorder after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health the Wellness Channel, Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Daddy Pacheris, and we are talking with her about her family's experience with her son, Scotty, who suffered from bipolar disorder. And um, can you tell us a little bit, Daddy, about what Scotty's experience was with treatment? You mentioned that his first treatment seemed to be very positive. He learned about triggers and how to deal with his bipolar disorder and that the medication he was given initially was very effective. Uh, yes. Um, after his um, first breakdown in 1994, he moved on with his life, and uh, I thought he was doing a very good job of managing his illness compounded by the loss of his wife because of his diagnosis. Um, But some six years later, disaster struck again. Um, He began spending a lot of time um, doing White House tours. Uh, He even proposed 
to his second wife in the blue room while on a White House tour. And this worried me because of his previous obsession with the president and the White House. Um, And then subsequently I received a letter from him summarizing his religious thoughts on a portion of the Ten Commandments, and I knew he was sick again. Um, His hypomanic phase quickly um, intensified until his second full-blown manic episode. Um, Scotty was um, a Virginia resident, and the Virginia law is very explicit, and I might add it's strictly enforced. Um, This law requires that someone with a severe mental illness um, must be an imminent danger to self or others before that person can be involuntarily committed with forced treatment. And because Scotty had not yet fallen into the imminent danger category, and by that I mean, Mary, that he wasn't pointing a gun at someone and he wasn't standing on the um, edge of a building getting ready to jump to his death. So uh, in the interim, we had no choice but to sit by and watch him deteriorate mentally until he actually became suicidal or homicidal. And um, only then could we arrange a hearing before a judge uh, to try to have him involuntarily treated. Uh, I told you Scotty was um, very, very bright. Um, Mm -hmm. When confronted by law enforcement officers because of his weird behavior, um, he possessed this uncanny ability to keep his mania intact just long enough to convince them he was not a danger to himself or others. And he knew the magic words. Uh, My name is Scott Baker. I'm bipolar. I take my medicine. I'm not suicidal. I'm not homicidal. And it's not against the law to have a mental illness, which it is not. And these magic words worked almost every time, and Scotty would not be detained by the police. Um... He became extremely religious again. Um, In the bipolar world in which he lived, um, God gave him his instructions over his car radio. Um, And according to Scotty at the time, God had even commissioned him to write another book for the Bible. Um, One day, with his Bible in hand, he attempted to actually get into the White House for what he, he thought was a scheduled meeting with President Clinton. Um, fortunately, he left the premises when instructed to do so by the Secret Service. Um, but over the years, he made many attempts to get into the White House. Um, for some reason, when he was manic, um, the White House was an obsession with him. Um, he, he made his way down to Southern Virginia. He made his way even further to Bradenton, Florida. Um, and he was committed... Um, in Petersburg, uh, in Southern Virginia, and in Bradenton, Florida, uh, for short periods of time. Um, He would do something, be picked up by the police, um, and he would be involuntarily committed um, once for nine days, one one for seven days. Um, But we, we all knew these short periods of forced treatment would not even make a dent in his mania. For Scotty, they were nothing more than slapping a Band-Aid on the problem. 
but at least these um, short commitments got him off the streets. Um, he somehow made it home to Northern Virginia, and the Crisis Control Center uh, picked him up at that point because he was uh, literally an accident waiting to happen. Um, and he was um, once again involuntarily committed in Northern Virginia, um, where he recovered in 26 days. Um, it, it takes almost a month of force meds um, for someone with a severe mental illness uh, to recover. Um, during this very long 80-day manic episode, Scotty was um, hospitalized twice in the District of Columbia, and see, he somehow managed to escape from both D.C. hospitals. Uh, he was subsequently involuntarily, involuntarily committed um, to hospitals in Petersburg, Virginia, Bradenton, Florida, and lastly at Falls Church, Virginia. The wonderful said, lady um, that he proposed to in the White House, Mary, was still waiting for him. Um, and um, I can tell you, it takes a very special person to marry someone with a mental illness, and she was indeed a special person. She saw him in action during this episode, and she married him anyway. And with her help, the two of them worked as a team to manage his illness, um, and he tried, although he was unsuccessful um, in putting the pieces back together at his company, because by this time, um, the illness had robbed him of his drive to succeed. So he was forced to close what was a, a very successful business and uh, take a considerable reduction in salary um, with another job. What do you think, what kind of treatment would have made a difference for Scotty? What do you think he needed that he didn't get? Um, he, um, he took most, uh, he took lithium um, most of the 13 years um, that he struggled with this illness, and it worked very, very well for him. Um, the problem is you have to take it, and when he would stop taking um, his meds, um, he became very, very ill, and then we were confronted with yet another uh, manic episode. When he was hospitalized, he was forced to take the lithium, um, which caused him to recover. Um, he, the, the secret is um, it, it has to be given... Every day, and you can't stop taking it. Um, lithium levels need to be checked on a monthly basis by the patient's psychiatrist um, just to make sure that things are in sync. Um, and oftentimes they are adjusted um, upward or downward. Um, sometimes... Um, Stress in one's life can uh, alter the effect of the lithium on someone with bipolar disorder. It can also be affected um, by too much caffeine, too much alcohol, um, even sometimes over-the-counter medications for the common cold. If you read the small print, um, it's 
it says, don't take this if you are presently taking antipsychotic drugs. The secret is treatment and the meds must be taken each day. Uh, the hospitals would do mouth checks just to make sure that he would swallow the medication um, and not uh, spit it out uh, once the nurse left the room. It sounds like he needs more support in the community um, in terms of um, community-based treatment, people that would check on him or, you know, work with him in the community. Um, perhaps that, that would have been helpful. Um, sometimes when he was discharged from the hospital, it was with the understanding that he would resume outpatient treatment on a daily basis, um, and the problem with that for Scotty was that he refused to go, um, and so therefore he would become sick again, do something to be picked up by the police, um, be held for a hearing, and the judge would either rule that he was um, suicidal or homicidal and commit him for treatment, or the judge would allow him to walk out of the hospital untreated. What was this like for your, you and your and his brothers and sisters all going through all this for so many years? It, it was a nightmare. Um, as I said before, um, normal life just doesn't exist for a bipolar family when their loved one stops taking their meds. When Scotty would get well, um, we would breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, he went a full six years from the first episode before he had the second. But there is um, much research that indicates that the longer bipolar patients go untreated um, has a definite correlation to the frequency of the next episode. Um, and each time he was allowed to go untreated for long periods, he incurred further brain damage. Um, and this untreated illness over time literally robbed him of his outgoing personality, his self-esteem, and all of his self-confidence. It destroyed his short-term memory and his thought process. And for the end, he could not even remember what he had done the day before. Um, he, he found it increasingly, toward the end, uh, difficult to cope with life. Um, he, he lived a very modest and uh, pitiful existence. Um, he was in financial ruin, living off of uh, credit cards and drinking heavily. Uh, he spent a lot of time sleeping. Um, he neglected his personal hygiene, and uh, taking a, a daily shower was just not high on his priority list. Um, it was well, painful like to watch him. <laughs> yeah, for his brothers and sisters, were they were they in contact with him? Um, oh yes. What was it like um, for them to watch his deterioration? Were they afraid that they might? get bipolar disorder as well? Or? Well, um, I, I can tell you um, that um, Scotty's um, three biological um, siblings realized 
that it could have been them in, instead of their brother, Scotty. Uh, it is a generic um, disease. Uh, it's, um, it runs in families. Uh, it, it's not going to go away. And uh, I feel that we just have to do uh, a better job of, of treating these people. We need to be proactive uh, and not reactive to a dangerous situation. Um, I, I was always very painfully aware of the suicide statistics for bipolar disorder. Those statistics um, indicate that uh, 25 to 50% of individuals with bipolar attempt suicide at least once during their lifetime. That's pretty high. And uh, of this number, roughly 15% are eventually successful. And uh, Scotty fell into the latter category. And we'll be back to talk about um, Scotty's suicide and um, what can be done to prevent suicide after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dottie Pacheris, who is sharing with us um, her family story about her son, Scotty, who um, developed bipolar disorder when he was 21 and ultimately committed suicide when he was 40. And she's written a book that chronicles her family's experience called Mine 
on the run, a bipolar chronicle. And um, before going to break, you were telling us that um, Scotty did attempt and completed a suicide when he was 40. Um, yes, Mary. Uh, as I was um, saying before the break, um, I, I always held out hope that Scotty would not become one of those statistics, but unfortunately he did. Um, um, the call came... Um, in February of uh, 07, one of his sisters and um, her husband had found Scotty's body. Um, this um, horrible illness um, took my son on a 13-year roller coaster ride. Uh, it destroyed two marriages, um, his career, and ultimately his life. Um, and throughout his 13-year struggle, uh, with bipolar disorder, I kept a journal uh, documenting his behavior, his hospital confinements, etc., uh, thinking that my notes might um, help doctors better treat his illness. Um, so after he took his life, I thought seriously about just putting my blinders on, um, putting the awful nightmare behind me, and just moving on with my life. Um, but instead... I decided to write a book about a suicide that proper treatment would have prevented, uh, thinking that it might help other families dealing with mental illness. Um, and as it turned out, writing the book was actually therapeutic because it allowed me to channel my anger toward our broken mental health system into the book. Um, it took me two years to write it, and it took me another year to attract a publisher. Um, the book was officially released a year ago today, as a matter of fact, um, at the opening of the annual convention of the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Chicago, where I had the opportunity to do book signings along with other authors um, who had written books about mental illness. Uh, for me, it was a truly humbling experience to meet so many other families um, dealing uh, with mental illness um, and confronting the same obstacles that my family uh, dealt with for such a long period of time. Um, as I point out in the book, I believe that individuals with um, a severe mental illness definitely have a civil right, uh, a civil right to receive treatment even though their illness precludes their ability to uh, sometimes recognize their ill. And I also strongly believe that the general public um, has a civil right to be protected from potentially dangerous, mentally ill individuals. Um, and I think that somehow in this country we must... Um, somehow find a balance between protecting the rights of mentally ill people while at the same time acquiring them the treatment that they need so they're not a threat to society. Uh, my family is very grateful that Scotty never hurt anyone. Uh, toward the end, he began talking about purchasing a gun um, so that he could protect himself from federal agents he actually thought we're trying to assassinate him because he was in possession of top-secret information that would uh, 
uh, take down important people in the government if he went public. Um, that was uh, a very frightening time for us. Um, we, we feared that he might purchase a gun. And um, I even tried to um, ascertain that my son's name was in the database um, maintained by the FBI um, that firearm dealers access when someone tries to purchase a gun. Um, people with uh, a history of involuntary commitments because of a mental illness, um, I'm told, um, have their name in that data bank. Uh, but because of the privacy laws, Mary, I couldn't even ascertain that my son's name was on the list. Um, I wasn't trying to add it. I just wanted the comfort level of knowing his name was on the list and he couldn't buy a gun. Um, but I was unable to do so because of privacy laws. Um, yeah, needless to say, as a result of my family's experience, um, I've, I've become an advocate for family involvement and in decisions about treatment. I think that what happened to my son and continues to happen to others like him just shouldn't happen in this country. And while I can no longer help my son, um, I, 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 I do think that um, I can advocate and help other Scotty Bakers out there and other families dealing with the same thing we dealt with. It's a... It's a very powerful story that you have, Dottie, and your willingness to help others, I think, is, is remarkable. And how can people get a hold of you or buy the book if they want to? Um, there is a website for the book. Um, it's mindontherun.com, um, and there is a link to purchase the book, which can be purchased through the publisher or it can be purchased through Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. The book is also available at Barnes & Noble locally. And if people want to contact you? Uh, they may contact me on the website. Um, there is also a link for contacting the author, and uh, I'd be happy to uh, hear from anyone um, um, that wants to talk about uh, mental illness and how we can all work together to do a better job of uh, treating people who have become severely overcome uh, with this illness and uh, are too sick to know they're sick and they need uh, people like me and others uh, to help them. Well, I want to thank you for writing the book and for your dedication to helping others. I hope that people listening to us will... Um, do something that is proactive and let their legislators and congressmen know that we need funding for health care. We need to be able to cover health care so that people like Scotty can get the treatment they need. Not only do they have a right to it, but um, we have to start to realize that we have to start taking care of our own and that um, it's a very wealthy country that has a lot of resources, but we don't use it on our own people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would, I would urge people to contact their legislators and encourage them to um, appropriate funding for proper facilities, but 
Um, this is very important. Join advocacy groups and get involved to change the country's laws governing the treatment of mental illness. Um, I've spoken to judges who tell me the law is currently inadequate to let judges do what families need them to do. Thank you so much, Dottie, for, um, for spending the hour with us. And once again, the book is Mind on the Run, a Bipolar Chronicle. Um, thank you again, and have a good week, everyone. Thank you, Mary. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.